I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to a special series on the Bohemian podcast called The Great War, The Czech Experience. Here are your hosts. Good evening and welcome to a special centennial anniversary series on the Bohemican Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow of the History of Alchemy Podcast. The centennial of the Great War has flooded TV cable channels, bookstores, and even podcasts, all of which, in my opinion, is a very great thing. The study of World War I can be a daunting task as many find it complicated, layered, and an overall hard to grasp. If you are an occasional or even an avid listener to the Bohemican Podcast, you will know that the intro and outro music is very different for this special series compared to our normal Bohemian podcast intro and outro, and that is done by design. I wanted to give an auditory feel of what the armies of 1914 felt. Upbeat, nationalistic, gung-ho. Compared to the maudlin outro tones of our program that demonstrates the heartbreak, the disillusionment, the sorrow that this war's conclusion brought to all those involved. That first bitter taste of what World War I would become was felt on the doorsteps of Warsaw, Poland, and later in the Carpathian Mountains of 1914, which leads us to tonight's focus on the Battle of Dukla and the Czech soldiers laying down their lives in what would turn out to be a frozen hell. Travis? Well, it's been a while since we did our last episode on World War I, so it's a great time to kind of jump back, first of all, and with the continuation of the 100-year anniversary of the opening years of the Great War. And the purpose of this series is to examine the many different roles the Czechs played during the world conflict and the creation of the Czechoslovak nation. In 1914, the war is underway, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire has her hands full with the Eastern Front, trying to set the tone for the early engagements of the Great War. The fall of 1914 saw an active Eastern Front, whereas the Austro forces fell to the Russians at the Battle of Lemberg, or Galicia, in what is today the Ukraine. A little later that fall, the Russians squared off against a combined German and Austro force engaged in Eastern Prussia just outside of Warsaw, Poland. As the Austrians retreated, many Slavic soldiers in the Austro-Hungarian army simply surrendered, or some even offered to fight for the Russians. A total of some 130,000 prisoners were taken by the Russians by the time the battle subsided on September 11th, while they inflicted 324,000 casualties. The Russians suffered heavily themselves at 225,000 casualties, including 40,000 captured. And, uh, like, 
we're talking about well over a half million, approaching 300, uh, three quarters of a million casualties. And we're just okay. getting warmed up. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the thing. The, the, the World War One up until this point, the sheer numbers of uh, like this, we're only experiencing the Battle of Waterloo, you know, against Napoleonic forces. And, um, you know, people, you know, had their their jaws just drop at those numbers. And we haven't gotten to the Battle of Verdun or the Somme. We haven't gotten right. to those engagements yet. So, yeah, this, these numbers are just crazy. It's just insane. And, and the Russians at this cost had managed to push the front uh, 100 miles, 160 kilometers into the Carpathian Mountains um, at, you know, at this extreme cost. But completely, now at this point, they completely surrounded the Austrian fortress of Przemysl and started a, start, and basically started the siege of Przemysl, which lasted for over a hundred days. The battle severely damaged the Austro-Hungarian army. It destroyed a large portion of its trained officers and basically just crippled Austria. Though the Russians had been utterly crushed at the Battle of Tannenberg, okay, wait a minute, I, I can't just I can't just say Battle of, I can't just mention <laughs> Battle of Tannenberg in passing. So, right. um, uh, the so the Second Army of the Russians just got annihilated, was destroyed in the Battle of Tannenberg. Hindenburg, so it didn't actually happen in Tannenberg. Hindenburg renamed the battle Battle of Tannenberg for propaganda purposes because of the uh, Teutonic Knights Battle of Tannenberg, which, by the way, I'll be getting to in the short future, in the near future in uh, the History of Germany podcast. Um, but this this battle was so bad, the, the Russian uh, army commander, the, the Russian commander, yeah, this, bar, this battle was so bad, the Russian commander at the end committed suicide, just took his own life rather than surrender to the Germans. It, it just horrible. Um, the Russians did, however, have a victory at Lemberg, so which the first army would later also be annihilated, basically. But this, this for now, prevented their complete defeat. This kept the public opinion at home in Russia from completely losing support for the war altogether. The Russians were just throwing, you know, people at this uh, over and over and over again. The same thing they did in World War II. You know, Germany couldn't couldn't hang with that. Think about Austria-Hungarian Empire, a much smaller military force. Uh, in a lot of ways. And most of their trained officers were just decimated in this particular engagement. You can't replace that. You just, you right. just can't, there's no time. You know, you've got a lot of people that are conscripts that are coming in now from all the different parts of the empire. A lot of these guys, we mentioned this before, Travis, in other podcasts, that they didn't speak the same language. So you would have a guy yelling at you in German, you know, your, your sergeant, and people would be like, uh, what is he saying? He's not happy, yeah. right? You know, so um, you would have a lot of these problems. And, and so and so you have, you have all this mismatch of, of cultures and languages going on, and you've lost your officer corps. They're basically done. And, Those and are the guys so, that spoke just Hungarian and German, by the way. So Yeah, so good, good luck, <laughs> yeah. right? So, you know, we're talking about the mid, mid-October of 1914. The war just is getting going, and the Austro-German forces uh, were closing in on Warsaw. This is supposed to be a big, big prize. And October 10th, the Ninth Army, now under August von Mackensen, defeated the Russians at Goyak, uh, about 30 miles south of Warsaw. By October 12th, Mackensen's forces were just about seven miles from the city when the Austrian Galatian Habsburg forces lifted the Russian siege and the key fortress town of Primusel. Stanley Washburn, an American correspondent following the Russian army, described the battle area which took place in a wooded location southeast of Warsaw. The forest for miles looks as though a hurricane had swept through. Men, fighting hand-to-hand with club muskets and bayonets, fought from tree to tree and ditch to ditch. Dead horses, 
Bits of men, blue uniforms, shattered transport, overturned gun carriages, bones, broken skulls, and grisly bits of humanity strew every acre of the ground. Here, it is no figure of speech about the ground being soaked with gore. One can see it, coagulated like bits of raw liver. Sand and earth and great lumps are held together by this human cement. Austrian Chief of Staff Konrad von Hossendorf's failed attack with over 130,000 casualties forced a retreat and now allowed the Russian army to test the Austrians in the Carpathian passes. Enter the Winter War on the Eastern Front. The Winter Campaign begins and the Czech troops embedded in the Austrian Habsburg army are headed into the Gates of Hell in the Carpathian Mountains. The 1914 Battle of Dukla Pass is one such engagement that is shrouded in confusion with the battle by the same name of the succeeding conflict of World War II in 1944 between the Nazi German forces and the Soviets. The participants in this 1914 Battle of Dukla Pass are the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russians. We want to make sure that's a clarification there because Dukla is a very famous name on many, many occasions for both world wars at two different times of yeah, course so if you end up looking this up make sure you get the world war one one exactly the winter months of 1914-1915 were harsh especially in the carpathian mountains it would be a battle that changed how the czechs were used and marked as a collective czech turning point no pun intended on their allegiance and, and, and alliance to the habsburg double eagle Travis, before we dive on into this particular engagement uh, at the Battle of Dukla, let's set the table with some background on the Austrian-Hungarian army at this time and how and what it was made up of. Going beyond what I said before, from the Czech perspective, if you were a Czech in the Austro-Hungarian army, really all the officers spoke German, possibly Hungarian. You would be highly encouraged to learn German. They, they definitely had um, Czech divisions and whole Czech regiments. And um, I mean, there was thousands and thousands of Czechs and even Slovak and all that. So you would have been with your Czech compatriots for the most part, uh, which is also interesting, by the way, because if you're, you know, if you kind of all hate your Austrian officer at the same time, then yeah, there was a lot of old grudges. There was a lot of, even in, even in, so, you know, these soldiers didn't just become soldiers or they're more soldiers in a vacuum. They came from, um, you know, towns and villages and cities where they were often, sometimes they were a minority and often they were second class citizens, even if they were a majority, which is a hard pill to swallow. And, you know, even in schools, you know, depending on what time period, you either couldn't learn Czech in schools or you were highly encouraged to learn German in, in schools or you had, you know, it was mandatory, but, you know, other classes would be, in, would be in Czech. Czechs got more and more rights during this time. But but still, I mean, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a sense of patriotism. There wasn't a sense of nationality um, because the flag that you were marching under was the Austro-Hungarian flag, not let the me, Czech let me or Slovak. And let me drop some numbers on you here, too, when it talk, talk about the differences of languages and trying to make one military force move with any kind of expediency would be just about impossible. Of the nine language groups of this particular Habsburg army, 44% were Slav. That would be Czech, Slovak, Croatian, Serb, Slovenian, uh, Ruthenian, Polish, and Bosnian Muslim. 28% were German, 18 were Hungarian, 8% spoke Romanian, and 2% Italian. The Germans were always oh, Italian. 
Yeah, remember that was a little bit a part of that too because of, of South the, Tyrol. Uh, and so, it, so South exactly. Tyrol is an Austrian area. Even today, it's Italy, but um, they still, if you go there, then they you'll still hear like an Austrian dialect of German. That's what the majority speak. And and they have to learn Italian in school. It's almost the opposite situation. It's, you know, and that was, by the way, that was as a punishment, part of the punishment to Austria of World War I. Um, was to give that piece of land to Italy. So that's why, I mean, to this day, there's a strong independence movement, or at least they want to join Austria, and it's not going to happen because, you know, now it's all embedded in the EU, and they're, they're Italians now, they have Italian passports. But if you, yeah, I've had a couple of beers with some of them at a beer garden, and they weren't always happy about that, you know? Of course, the Hungarians were considered somewhat of a, a privileged co-equals, uh, remained very liable, even until the defeat stared them in the face later on. Mm-hmm. The Catholic Croats had a very long record of loyalty to the empire as well. Uh, the Poles, hating the Russians, were loyal to them. So you had that kind of, you know, uh, the the enemy of, interesting, <laughs> of my yeah. enemy is my friend. Interesting, right? interesting dynamic for sure. Yeah. In some ways, the situation was far worse for the Austrian army. The Austrian military system was somewhat better than the Russian army, if only because the command structure was largely staffed by Germans. About 75% of all the officers were German. Um, I think the point here is that because they all spoke the same language, they were efficient with each other. Not that because they were Germans, they were better. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Um, Right. right. And remember, remember the officer corps we talked about that was decimated in the Battle of Warsaw, you know, in the Fortress Primusel, when the officer corps spoke primarily German, right. that was yeah. was thrown into, all into, into disarray because That's they the were part all that was gone. annihilated. Yes, exactly. The important takeaway here, the important thing to note is you just have to realize that a lot of these soldiers were just clearly not as loyal as um, the Austrians hoped they would be. They didn't fight with the same vigor. They didn't have the same motivation. When the situation sucked, they you know, didn't want to fight. They, you know, they were in it because they, they had to be in it. You just mentioned 44% were Slovak altogether. So take out the Croats and maybe the Poles. You know, you have Romanians, Italians, and Czechs and Slovaks not really wanting to be there. And a lot of them sympathizing more with Russians than with Austrians, because unlike the Poles, you know, Russians were Russians, but at least they were Slavic. And there right. was a, pa- a pan, oh, we're going to get into this when we talk about Mucha, uh, Alphonse right. Mucha. And the there artist. was a pan-Slavic yeah. movement at this time. So that this is, this is important to call out and emphasize, is that, um, it, you know, it's not just that they hated Austria, but th- there was a sense that we're shooting fellow brother Slavs. And, you know, under and our commanding officers are giving us our marching orders in German. Right. So if you kind of get get your head around that, then you understand that. Oh, yeah. So we have a majority of the army that is not German. Vast majority. Only 28 percent were German. And um, a big percentage of the rest, you know, really didn't like shooting Russians all that much. Early November 1914, it was an absolute mess. Uh, the Russians had besieged this fortress town and the, this enormous but obsolete 1854 stronghold on, on the San River uh, they had blocked the northern entrance to the Carpathians. You had to have this this gate. You had to be able to use this to get into the Carpathians. The Russians bottled it up with the Austro-Hungarian garrison and utilized the region around it as a staging ground to control this vital route into the heart of the Habsburg territory. You had to have this fortress. Uh, Their ultimate goal was to drive the Austro-Hungarians out of the war right then and there. With some 130,000 troops under under siege at Primosel, 
and fearing a, th a threatened invasion of Hungary, the dual monarchy simply had to take immediate steps to force the Russians from the Carpathian Mountains. This became then their biggest test. In the winter of 1915, they launched three, now repeat this, three separate and equally ill-conceived offenses. An initial <laughs> effort, yeah, it, it just doesn't get any worse. I mean, they're going to say the first one didn't work, the second one didn't work, the third one was a disaster. Oh, so that's just, yeah, that's just so the way World War One worked. Absolutely. Oh, when you talk yep. about the trench warfare, send them over the top. Didn't work, send them over the top. You know, yep. and, and just repeat and repeat and repeat. Um, the initial effort on January 23rd, the, a second coordinated assault on the Russians on February 27th, and a third and final effort to liberate the fortress premisal in late March. Those were the three offenses we're, we're alluding to. The geographical reality of the Carpathians would play a very key role in the military disaster yet to come. The mountains along the contested front formed an arching barrier roughly about 60 to 75 miles wide with a median elevation of some 3,600 feet. In 1914 and 1915, only a handful of poorly constructed roads uh, and a few railroad lines were transversed this main pass in the area. With little infrastructure and poor means of transport throughout the entire mountain range, logistic possibilities were stretched to the very, very limit. Cold and damp, the temperatures were, were starting to plummet. The mountains were often rainy in September and usually covered by snowfall by early November. They can remain covered in deep snow until very late spring, yet sudden spikes in mild temperatures can bring flooding. So this area was treacherous and unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Militarily, the artillery logistics were especially challenging on this location, and in such conditions would be just about impossible. Because it is difficult to transport and, and implement artillery in, on an uneven, elevated ground, many batteries were confined to lower terrain, an obvious disadvantage for attacking infantry, of course. The Habsburg Command had made no contingency plans for a mountain campaign lasting into the winter months. One of its many failures, of course, because they accepted a short war illusion that would prove to be a disastrous yeah. mistake. Their uniforms were, were a mess. They weren't ready for winter because this was supposed to be quick and easy and done. Um, that didn't happen. It could have been over much quicker had the Russians actually defeated them, but it kind of worked in the Austrians' advantage that their infrastructure sucked so bad because Austria-Hungary was really behind the times just as far as a railroad, just, just, you know, but in all kinds of other means too. But outside of Bohemia had the most railroad lines, actually. Um, in Austria, and then, uh, but the Carpathian Mountains in the far east of the Austrian, Nothing. you know, Nothing. not yeah, Th that actually that did mean that you know, on the in the Western Front, you see all kinds of on rail these huge artillery, like Big Bertha, and uh, you know, or Di Cosa Beta or whatever those huge right. shelling guns. shelling Paris, Sh yeah. shelling Paris. They yeah. rolled up right on r the railroad lines, the French railroad lines, which the French had built. You know, so it worked against them in the end, and this would have worked against the Austrians. If, had they gotten big artillery up there, the Austrians. I would guess have been that, done for I guess that's true. The, so now the lack this, of infrastructure right. probably helped them sustain a little bit longer. But so now they were starving. It helped them starve instead of get captured or killed right away. The blame for this disastrous winter campaign can be laid at the feet of Chief of the Austro-Hungarian General Staff, General Franz Konrad von Hötzendorf 
who's the, it's the same guy you mentioned before. Conrad placed a huge burden on his own shoulders and felt that his forces needed to meet the obvious threat of the invasion head on. He also believed he had to win a major victory over the Russians to demonstrate the strength of the central powers. So the head-on thing, that's just typical World War One. You know, now we would clearly see that as a bad strategy. But he also, I mean, he was besieged. You can't even, this is crazy that you can even have, a, you, you know, a siege like this. This is like medieval stuff. Um, is, there was it, no air, there was no air support to re, to relieve this. This could never have happened in World War II. You can't compare Stalingrad to this by any means. These are you know totally apples and oranges. I mean, this is just this is just insane. Just a bad situation to be in. You're you're back into a very primitive um, sort of siege warfare type of situation in 1914. Conrad saw that the Carpathian Mountains as an opportunity to regain his prestige with a very swift military victory over the Russians, and like the others in the Habsburg hierarchy, he feared the loss of the fortress Primosel because it would lead to the defeat of the army and to the dual monarchy itself as a highway right into, into Hungary. The main objective was to liberate the besieged stronghold, get some rescue into them. His grandiose plan that was hatched in December called for an offensive to be launched along a broad 100-mile forested front on the northern Carpathians by the Habsburg Third Army even though it had not recovered from its costly October to December defeats. It was limping along, yeah. but these guys had to come and save the day. That's what, that's what the Austrians had hoped. The newly created South Army, composed of three divisions from the German army, and the rest that were made up of the Habsburg units, would simultaneously attack the Russians' extreme left flank. Conrad believed the troops' capabilities and the element of surprise were critical assets in his plan, but that a bit of luck would have to be needed for this offensive to succeed. On January 23, 1915, the first offensive began. Now, the Habsburg forces did win some early minor victories, advancing into a 24-mile gap in the Russian lines, but that progress came against numerically inferior enemy units, okay? So by January 26th, the Third Army's front extended 60 miles, or about 100 kilometers, between the vital Dukla and, uh, and Uzhok passes. Despite that, the battle was already turning as the Russians began to launch massive counterattacks. Suddenly, a severe shift in the weather further undermined the Habsburg situation. The combination of weather-related and battle casualties rapidly depleted Habsburg frontline troop strength, reducing many divisions to only regiment or even brigade size. By early February, the first Carpathian Mountain offensive had all but collapsed. The Russian forces continued to hold key passes in the region, including the strategic Dukla Pass. Following their successful counterattacks, Russian troops poured through the pass to threaten important railroad junctions. They soon outnumbered and stalled the Austro-Hungarian forces some 50 miles from Fortress Premisil, eliminating any chance of breaking the siege, right? So that, that, that chance is that gone. That was done. Yeah. And by mid-February, the Russians had effectively regained the initiative. Okay, so you can see the times that turn. I, I don't yeah, think anybody really reading the story thought that the Austrian-Hungarian army were setting themselves up for success, to be honest with you. They, they had to, to save a besieged fortress town 
that would basically be the the um, highway into their their own monarchy, and they had to do that with with forces that were already depleted and beat up, and the weather was getting bad, and there was no artillery, and the food lines were starting to, to shorten. It now, was a mess. They're not dressed for the weather, really. The Russians probably are. You know, they they kind of, as usual, they kind of know what's going on in w- winter time, um, but the Austrians now are out out in the cold for way longer than they thought to be, and yeah, that's just. Yeah, uh-uh. I, I bet you, you may talk about those cavalry units they brought in. I bet they were eating horse meat before this, this engagement was finished. Yep. And they had nothing to fire, no artillery, no weapons of any kind that would really be helpful. And the Russians were making a pretty successful counteroffensive at this point of the war. Combat fatigue under winter mountain conditions can be seen as a mark of disaster, and we see it here. We have seen this in various armies throughout history. Uh, you could talk about the, the Germans going into Russia, to Soviet Russia uh, during World War II. We could even go back as far as, as, far as um, uh, the Napoleonic armies uh, going, into, yeah. going into Russia. It, it really takes its toll. What comes into mind is the task of the American and UN forces also that would face the mountainous areas in Korea during the winter months of the Korean War in some 30 plus years after World War One. So we can see so many different sort of examples of this not being prepared because of these condition, winter conditions. In the first part of the Great War, Habsburg troops routinely lacked basic necessities. Foodstuffs did not make it up to the front lines. Right. Um, at, in time, and there was a, you know, if, if they did, it was already well frozen. Heavy rainfall, blinding snowstorms would be in the way. Icy river crossings that would leave soldiers' uniforms frozen to their bodies. Yeah, yeah. You know, the men lacked proper attire, and most yeah. suffered lung ailments as well as frostbite. Many froze to death, and you just left them there at the side of the road. Boots with cardboard soles, for example, quickly became yeah. unusable. What the heck? Yeah. I know. Could you imagine? Here, here you are. You're a Czech in the army. You don't speak the language except for a couple of your buddies from town. Uh, you're fighting for a cause you really don't care about for an empire that's not yours really in your heart. But you're fighting for them. You're freezing to death and you're starving. Hey, well, I think I want to go home. The Habsburg Supreme Command continued to be oblivious to all this, of course, um, and many troops were deployed on open terrain with no cover in sub-zero temperatures for extended periods of time, leaving many vulnerable to frostbite. Soldiers struggled to stay awake to avoid freezing. In the snow, that was often three feet to six feet deep. Movement was really, really difficult and exhausting. So troops had to dig out in order to go on patrol, launch an assault, clear a defensive position, anything you wanted to even dig latrines, you had to uh-huh. dig, dig, dig. You know, the snow was just up to your up to your waist. Um, the shoveling required hours of, of very hard work, and I bet you, dollar to donuts, they put those slobs on those details. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I doubt yeah. you the Germans or the Austrians or the, or the Hungarians were digging the latrines oh, the, or digging the The stuff. officers were sitting back in the tent where the, where the only fire was allowed to be had, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they were utterly exhausted, and and many of these troops became apathetic and committed suicide by shooting themselves or exposing themselves to enemy fire. They just couldn't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. It became mental stress. Tens of thousands of horses, too, uh, that were critical to the Habsburg supply chain succumbed and were overworked to exhaustion and died or died of starvation. Setting the conditions for you, if you can put yourself, and this is the hardest part, 
that amateur historians, we as we try to do, is to try to put yourself in this situation as as a person that is is probably already uh, you know signed your life away at this point. You probably you know, delegated yourself to to sheer death at this point, and you're wondering when is it going to happen, not if. But imagine these conditions. Here you are, freezing cold at night. You haven't eaten. You hear the shrieking wind. You probably hear you know wolves in the in, out out there someplace at some point. You know you've got you know this darkness, mysterious mountain sounds, the ice that could be creaking, and um, you know your eyelids are caked shut almost because of the freezing. Nighttime temperatures dropped as low as negative twenty five degrees Fahrenheit, ensuring that many of the men that were left exposed would surely die and would not awake in the morning. Troops were, free, were frequently forced to march in the darkness for hours on end. They would sometimes see shadows swiftly transversing across the positions into no man's land, and shortly thereafter hear screaming as wolves made a meal of wounded men. Religious souls visualize hell as a blazing inferno, with burning embers and intense heat. The soldiers fighting in the Carpathian Mountains that first winter of the war know otherwise. Colonel Georg Weid, Austrian-Hungarian Third Army. The situation faced by frontline soldiers was exacerbated by the lack of reserves and reinforcements. The dual monarchy was the only major power that did not have a reserve army. It failed even to propose the creation of one much later into the war when it was just too late. Hundreds of thousands of Habsburg soldiers were forced to occupy their positions until killed, wounded, or captured. Another fatal flaw in the First Carpathian Mountain Offensive was the uncoordinated Austro-Hungarian attack efforts. Individual units would attack single enemy positions without communicating with the other neighboring units. Even commanding officers ignored direct orders to launch a coordinated attack until it was too late to do any good. One thing to point out here is that, by the way, the Russians, this whole time, they were getting reinforcements, they were getting supplies, they had the proper attire. Um, the, the suffering was definitely one-sided. That's that's all that, you know, that needs to be said. So the, the Russians were fine with night attacks, they were fine with, with long marches, meaning the Austrians were just playing catch-up the whole time. Not to say the Russians had great supplies. Uh, that Yeah, I don't want to over exaggerate that either. At um, this point, they were still in the game. In, yeah, in, in they, they were much better off than the Austrians. They yeah, they, they had, they had the revolution hadn't kicked in yet and people yep. weren't disillusioned. So, oh, this is, yeah, um, yeah, this is still 1914 yeah. or 19, early 1915. This is, oh yeah, they're, they're much better off. In the meantime, in preparation for the second offensive, Conrad had ordered the Habsburg 8th Corps to be transferred from the, from the Balkan front to support the 3rd Army's effort to push the Russians out of the, this critical Dukla and Ushok passes. The rail and communication centers of Liskol, Sonok, and Sambir were the primary objectives, because that's that's the only rail in the area, actually. And as the planned day of attack, February 25th, approached, the combination of falling temperatures and the incessant movement of troops and supplies all but destroyed the few roadways leading toward the front. So now we're talking walking through mud, really, really bad conditions. Well, you, mean walk, you mean walking through mud, your horses are stuck in mud, what yeah. artillery you have is stuck in mud. The, the horses, you're not the going horses are obsolete. We're, yep. They're useless. They are a burden now. They're they're now dead weight, okay? Um, yeah, so yeah, your heavy wagons are completely bogged down in the mud. They're just stuck. You, you no longer have them. The shortage of military labor and, and sapper crews made it nearly impossible to keep the roads open. Moreover, disease was spreading by this time. So we start to, you know, as if everything wasn't bad enough, if you <laughs> get enough apart. bad conditions for long <laughs> yeah. enough, 
this inevitably happens. So now we do start to see um, disease being listed as one of the major causes of of casualties just just throughout or just, you know, people dropping out is no longer frostbite, but also just really bad hygiene conditions. And that's just the end of the first offensive, right? So the second offensive um, is now mired in muck in late February. Um, You can't get through. The temperatures drop a little bit. You think that's good news. It really isn't. It's a mud pit. So everything basically is is just stopped in its tracks. A frontal attack was deemed essential in response to the mountainous pressure, both military and politically, to get this done, to liberate the fortress. Primosol and its large trapped garrison, now running desperately short on supplies, including food. All the reinforcements were in transit to the front line as the offensive got underway. The army's middle and left flank positions quickly buckled under the relentless Russian counterattacks. The continued pressure from the enemy forced arriving Habsburg reinforcements to be inserted piecemeal into the battle to fill the widening gaps in the front lines. The poorly trained replacement troops, also probably Czechs and other Slovaks, already outnumbered, found themselves hurled into battle as cannon fodder. So welcome to the front, guys. (laughs) We're going to put you right on in there. On March 1st, Colonel Vieth of the 3rd Army wrote, quote, Fog and heavy snow falls. We have lost all sense of direction. Entire regiments are getting lost, resulting in catastrophic losses, unquote. With the Second Army bled white, the Second Carpathian Offensive failed completely, leaving the Austro-Hungarian Army 60 miles short of the besieged fortress. Yet, Conrad refused to give up. That's right, Pete. The Habsburg forces remaining in the Carpathians had to defend against ongoing enemy onslaughts, just all the time. On March 20th, the Russians unleashed a series of mass assaults in rapid succession in an effort to hurl the Habsburg 2nd and 3rd armies back over the mountain ridges. The day before that, March 19th, the starving soldiers at Premisel, who decided to make a break for it mostly because the horse meat and bread had basically were, were now running out. General Conrad sent a coded telegram to his men to fight one last time with honor with one last punch to force a fighting escape. This would have proved to be a bloody disaster for the Austro-Hungarian army, mainly because the Russians had figured out the code and were ready for such an attack. You know, this is a comedy of errors that I don't think you can write this and believe it. Yeah. What a mess. Like, yeah. So, I mean, the Russians, what else can possibly go bad? Oh, the Russians cracked your code? Okay, oh, oh, yeah, they did that too. The Austro-Hungarian army instead opted for surrendering the fortress, um, even though they didn't know that they had broken the code, that this is this was just a little bit of wisdom peeking through, I guess. And incredibly, neither the 2nd Army Command nor the 5th Corps was informed of the fortress surrender, so a few days later, uh, the 5th Corps launched its completely pointless offensive. Having no chance of success, this third effort failed, with yet more enormous Habsburg casualties. Okay. You know, does this sound so a little bit what? like the third I, offense? Didn't even yeah. The oh, third offense. Yeah. I, I'm angry. I'm angry reading this and researching this. You know, for it. When when you I'm, study World War One, you just Austrian scratch your mad. head. <laughs> you just you just scratch your head and you go, just the sheer pointless loss of life. Yeah. I just just because of of hubris. Because of ego, because of crappy communications, because of of uh, failed military, you know, strategy, you just scratch your head, and yeah. you just say, you know what? I completely get it. For the, especially those soldiers that were Czech, um, or these other disillusioned sort of peripherals in the empire that didn't feel connected to, to the reason why they were fighting, just said, I'm done, dude. If yeah. I survive this, I'm out of here. 
And well, at you the know, time, I mean, from a soldier point of view, they may have been following their training. Conrad, oh, you have a siege, you break a siege. Uh, but that's 19th century training. And it's, you know, this is, I believe, especially the Austrians did not have the foresight of to see what World War I would become. Even here, you just see old thinking, like, let's try to break the siege. We got to, I mean, this just it's just nuts. Hundreds of thousands of men lost their lives with very little to show for their sacrifice. Conrad's flawed planning also resulted in the German military exerting greater control over the Habsburg command structure. You can imagine the Germans are sitting back going, okay, you guys are done. You, you absolutely do, don't know how to operate a, a military campaign. We're going to take over for you. And that basically shows how, what was going to happen for the rest of the war. You can see that at this point that the German command had lost a great deal of confidence uh, in the Austro-Hungarian military leadership and, and that they would be taking the, the reins. Yet the Russian strategy of driving through the Carpathian Mountains to deliver a death blow to the Austria-Hungarian Empire proved equally flawed. The campaign forced the Russians to deploy increasing numbers to, of troops into the inhospitable mountain terrain, drawing them ever deeper into a region that, that limited their mobility and dangerously overextended their already meager supply lines. It's a trap, Pete. Yeah, it's a trap. <laughs> yeah, and when so when the Germans launched their successful Gorlice Tarnov offensive in eastern Poland in May, the Russians were then ill-prepared, and that offensive gave the Central Powers their greatest victory of the entire war, period. It helped stabilize the Eastern Front while rescuing the Austro-Hungarian forces from total annihilation, really. Although the disastrous Carpathian Winter War has received scant attention over the past century, it was critically important to the First World War's Eastern Front and foreshadowed the more famous bloodbath battles of the 1916 year of Verdun and the Somme. It stands as a lasting reminder of how unimaginably brutal conditions can transform the mountainous battlefield into a frozen hell on Earth. Travis, as we finish this particular episode of the Great War, the Czech experience, what do you take away from this rarely mentioned Carpathian engagement on the Eastern Front of World War I? For one thing, in 1915, we'd see the war escalate, and the fragmentation of the Czech troops would continue within the Austro-Hungarian army, and the you know, Czechs just getting more and more discontent, the discontentment and evaporating respect for the imperial military leadership, um, and then sort of leading to Czech soldiers planning to desert uh, their Austrian ranks, and in many cases, switch side to join their Slavic brothers in the Russian army. In many cases, we start, I mean, we see them joining the French Foreign Legion en masse. Um, yeah, just, you know, just splitting, just leaving. Some would join the other Entente armies and some would just disappear off the books as in um, they, they would abscond and then just go home or disappear. Uh, Habsburg forces fought to rescue 130,000 Austro-Hungarian soldiers trapped by the Russians. But, but ironically, it, you know, overall, it produced something like, what, six times as many casualties as the number that was actually besieged? This is just old thinking. Oh, there's a siege. We need to lift it. Okay. You know, oh, there's a fortress. We need to besiege it. That is just old warfare. You, you now have six times as many people dying to save 130,000. That's insane. That just, people just couldn't, but, but you tell a general, okay, uh, the alternative is you sacrifice 130,000. A general in World War I just couldn't understand that that could be the smaller number. You know, 130,000, wow, that is just crazy. Um, but yeah, those are the numbers they, they dealt with, but those are not the numbers they were used to. So they just couldn't react. They couldn't um, plan a strategy 
based on those insane numbers. And I think in some respects that you, after you you throw in several other battalions and they get annihilated, I think you just you say, you know what, we've done so much, we have to keep going, you know. And yeah, in I, a way, I don't yeah, know how stubborn that is, now. but yeah. So it remains one of the least understood and most devastating chapters of the war. Some histories would call it one of the first examples of modern total war. The battles in the Carpathians ushered in the horrors of the Great War, only to be overshadowed by numerous other bloodbaths of the war to end all wars. We want to thank you for listening to tonight's Bohemian Podcast special edition of The Great War, The Czech Experience. If you have yet to listen to our other previous World War I special episodes, you can find them on iTunes, Acast, or on the World War I page of our Bohemican.com website. There will be more of these special episodes as the World War I centennial continues. So for Travis Dow, I'm Pete Coleman saying goodnight from Prague. You have been listening to the Bohemican Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dow. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas, and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com. Or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemian Podcast, thank you for listening.